I'd like to begin this morning's message with a phrase I thought I'd never say. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. <laughs> According to a recent survey, the book of Revelation is the book that church members most want to hear preached. It's the book also that preachers least want to preach. <laughs> I understand that discrepancy because I have a lot of questions about the provocative book. Sure, I'll hear it preached. I don't have a lot of answers, so... I uh, don't feel fully qualified to preach it, but we have to go there this morning. We're on the final leg of a three-part series on the throne of God. One of the things I've learned throughout this series is that God really wants his people to cultivate a vision of him reigning on his sovereign and glorious throne. This is important truth throughout the Bible, especially when things get chaotic here. We need to go to the throne. We need to always be going to the throne so that when our world falls apart, we don't fear. Um, we've looked at Psalm 11. David uh, found refuge in God when his world fell apart. Uh, we looked at Isaiah 6 last week. This vision of the throne sustained Isaiah through a particularly difficult ministry career. If we want to cultivate this vision, we can't skip over the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is essentially a book about God reigning on his throne. There's nearly 40 mentions of the throne of God throughout the book, and nearly half of them are mentioned in our text this morning in chapters 4 and 5. So if you have your Bible open, go ahead and turn to chapter 4. We're going to cover two chapters, and for uh, what we're used to in this church, that's kind of a jolt. Wait, two chapters? This is going to be forever. Um, we're used to digging in and going through every little detail. Um, you'll have to wait till Scott gets the courage to preach through Revelation to do that. So whenever he musters the courage to get there, we'll, we'll go through every detail. Today, I just want to hover over couple of uh, chapters and get the main point of why, why did John go to the throne? What is, he, what, is, what is the main purpose of this stunning vision of the throne? What's he trying to tell us? That's loaded with imagery, with metaphors, with word pictures to give us a compelling vision. And, and we're going to dig in a little bit and get some of the details, but I want to mainly focus on the stunning truth contained in these two chapters the big idea of the two chapters. So with that in mind, I want to offer four points. We're going to slowly work through them as we progress through the text. We're going to offer four points about the throne of God, about God's glory from Revelation 4 and 5. The first point is simply this. God's glory is what the church needs. God wrote, or John wrote this vision of chapters 4 and 5 because the church needs to see God on his throne. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is very much for us Today, we need a vision of God on his throne, on his glorious throne. So with that in mind, let's read the first verse of chapter four to get our bearings. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The chapter begins with a door that's open. John will walk in and see a throne. But in this first verse, he says, after this, twice. After this, this is what happened. After this, this is what happened. And so if you have your Bibles open, we, we, it's worth our time just to look what this comes after. If you have your Bible, just scan through. You'll look at chapters two, chapters three. You're gonna find a lot of red letters. If you're familiar with the, the layout of Revelation, these are seven letters to seven churches in John's day. They had a variety of issues. And John is writing the words directly from Jesus to these churches. As persecution began to heat up, churches were responding to the heat in different ways. Some of them were remaining faithful, but many of them were not. If you um, don't remember or you're not familiar with these two chapters, it's worth studying, but let me give you a, a little bit of a highlight of these two chapters real quick. I've got a slide that kind of goes through this. First, Ephesus. If you remember, this church had abandoned their first love. They were hot at the beginning and, and they, they loved God, but they had slowly drifted away. They had taken their eyes off the throne and began to love other things. 
Smyrna, they were trying to remain faithful through intense persecution. They had their eyes fixed on the throne. The message to Smyrna, keep going. It's okay. Keep pushing. The message to Pergamum was difficult. They had accepted false teaching on a variety of different levels. They just opened the door to false teachers. Come on in. They had free reign in Pergamum. The message is repent. See the vision of God's throne. Thyatira, they had invited sexual immorality in the church. They opened the door to sexual immorality. Repent. Sardis, this church was about to die. They were on their deathbed and they severely needed to repent. Philadelphia, like Smyrna, they're, they're faithful. They're holding to God's word. Your reward's coming. Just hold on to the very end. Overcome. Keep pushing. Hold on. And finally, Laodicea, they trusted in their own wealth. They were lukewarm. Again, they had diverted their eyes from the throne of God and they trusted in their wealth. They trusted in their resources. And they neglected God. Two of the seven churches were faithful. They were simply encouraged to persevere, but five of the seven churches had diverted their gaze from God's throne. They began to focus on the world and the results were tragic. Their love had grown cold. They'd abandoned their love for God. They were seduced by the pleasures and the comforts of this world. When they took their eyes off the throne and put it on the earth, they said, this is actually kind of nice. They had opened the door to false teaching. Yeah, sure, come on in. They started celebrating false teachers. So what happens when you take your eyes off the throne. They had opened the door to sexual perversions, and then they began to celebrate them. So what happens when you take your eyes off the throne. Does this remind you of our churches today? It's getting so hard to fight against the powers of secularism. We're not to where the churches in um, the early first century, the late first century were, um, but it's heating up. And a lot of churches in the West, they're just stopping. They're just giving up. And like Sardis, many churches are spiritually dead because they stopped looking at the throne of God. They diverted their gaze from heaven to here, to earth, to the temporal things. And yeah, sure, come on in sexual immorality. Come on in false teachers. You can have a home here. The answer to every single one of these issues in all seven churches is a compelling vision of God's throne. Come up, the door is open, walk through it and see God on his throne. This is the message for every church. This is the message for us today. Come look at God on his throne, plain and simple. We need to behold him. What can rouse a church from stale and cold and lifeless love like the warmth of God's glory? What can bring a church to repentance on its knees like a vision of the thunder and lightning from the, the throne of God? What can divert a church from sexual perversion like seeing the pure beauty of the king on his throne? It will make the alternatives pale in comparison. What can help a church bear up under the weight of persecution and under suffering like a compelling picture of God's sovereignty? He's in control. Church, this is all we need. Our prayer should be, show us your glory. Show us your throne. We want to go there. You might ask, how can we go there? How can we see this vision? John had the, the, the privilege of opening a door. Christ walked him through the door and showed him this wonderful vision. What about us? We, we can't seem to go there. How do we captivate ourselves with this picture of the throne? What do we do? It's what we do every Sunday morning. That's why we got in our cars and came to this room to worship God, to behold him on his throne. 
It's what you're going to do when you leave this room today. You're going to go with your families and sit around with your friends, with your neighbors around a table and break bread together and go to the throne of God. It's what you do in the mornings when you wake up to pray and to read the Bible and to think about it throughout the... It's when your life groups meet. We're going to the throne of God. This is how we cultivate this image and this is what we need, this compelling vision of God on his throne. We are called by the grace of God for the glory of God. This glory of God is the driving force behind everything that we do. Show us your glory, Lord. So you might ask, what does this glorious throne look like? Let's take a look. This leads to our second point. God's glory is better than anything we can imagine. It's better than anything we can imagine. As we get into the text here in chapters four four and five, we're gonna find a stunning picture of God's glory. Let's continue in chapter four and verse two. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the thrones were like 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. <coughs> the second living creature, like an ox. The third, like a face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And, they, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Wow, this is a very full scene. Good luck trying to draw this picture. (laughs) Lots of images, lots of visions. It's very ordered, but it's very full. And there's so many details, the light, the thunder, the rain, just lots of stuff. And yet the first thing that John sees when he walks in the door is a throne. There's a throne here. This full, overwhelming scene of heaven. And when he beheld the throne, the first thing he said about that was, it's like Jasper and Carnelian around the throne. Can't you feel the beauty? Me neither, really. <laughs> we break it down. Uh, the uh, the uh, description of God's glory using fine and rare gemstones has never really done it for me. When I think of rare gemstones, I think of my childhood visit to Jim Mountain in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I had a great time in sixth grade. And I'm sure I got a piece of Jasper or Carnelian in my bucket somewhere, but it's hardly what I would describe heavenly. <laughs> And so what is John's point here? Why does he say that the throne emanated like a jasper, like a carnelian, like an emerald? Why the gemstones? Maybe the better way to think about this is not Jim Mountain. Maybe uh, the better way we can think about this image is the British crown jewels. I've never seen these, but I've heard that you, you can't be in a room with the crown jewels and not be whoa, captivated by the, the eminence of these stones and the brightness and the, the glory shining off of these stones. I imagine that many of these people would have thought about the breastplate that the priest put on walking into the temple. Stunning. Just shining forth beauty, shining forth glory. But again, the focus isn't on the rocks. This is apocalyptic literature. If we get focused on every single detail, we're gonna get really trapped up and really confused. And so don't think rocks here. What's the purpose behind the rocks? Maybe the meaning, uh, have you ever heard somebody say, man, that person's got a heart of gold. Got a heart of gold, man. You don't think of uh, literally like, it's kind of weird if you think of it literally. 
It's kind of weird. You, when you hear that figure of speech, you think of the compassion and the beauty and the grace and the dignity that just shines out of that person. And so when John sees this picture of the throne and he says it was like Jasper and Carnelian, he's talking about the sheer beauty and the weight of God's glory. And it's stunning. You, you can't think, as, you can't, your mind can't go there. You can't think of a stunning enough picture in your head and that's why I think John just employed some imagery, the jasper, the carnelian, because you can't really describe how truly beautiful and magnificent this is. I'm with commentator James Hamilton here, who said, feel free to let your mind run wild when you vision, envision this scene. As you close your eyes and you think about this picture of the throne and the glory and the majesty emanating from the throne, as you're thinking of colors, your, your colors aren't bright enough. As you're thinking of the warmth of the glow, it's not pleasant enough. I know it. Our minds just can't quite get there to what John saw and what he felt. As you're feeling the pull and the desire for that throne to be in God's presence, that desire and that beauty isn't strong enough. Church, let us set our gaze on the glory of God's throne. It's stunning. It's wonderful. It is what we need more than anything and so the first thing he sees is the throne and it's just shooting out glory and wonders and beauty and majesty. But he'll employ a lot of creative imagery to make his point and to tell us why it's so stunning and why it's so beautiful. There's two images that really don't belong together, but in God's vision, they do belong together. There's a rainbow and there's thunder and lightning. Rainbow and thunder and lightning. They're both here together and they kind of they collide both on, as John looks at the throne. Now the rainbow reminds us of course of Noah, right? The flood. Even in the midst of destruction, God is merciful. He won't destroy. The rainbow reminds us of God's mercy and grace. It says, come. And yet there's lightning and there's thunder which reminds us of Mount Sinai with the law being given. The Israelites backed away. The lightning and the thunder says, whoa, stay back. God's just, he's holy. And so these two images mix. The rainbow, come, I'm merciful. The justice, stay away, I am holy. They mix, and when these two images come together and collide, what else comes out but God's beautiful, stunning, radiant glory? There's no one like our God. Justice and mercy. As we progress, we're, we're gonna find seven torches and John says that these are the seven spirits of God. You might wanna call a timeout here. What? <laughs> I thought there was one. <laughs> okay, now if we found this in an epistle in one of Paul's letter and he mentioned the seven spirits, then we, we've got some work to do. We're, okay, what's going on here? This, is a genre, this genre is apocalyptic. The number seven is very symbolic, deeply symbolic. And so when John says the word seven, the number seven, he's wanting to connote the idea of perfection. And so God's spirit is there in complete perfection, like a, like a flame of fire, like a torch of fire. The spirit of God is fully there. That's what John's trying to say. Now in front of the throne is a sea. This reminds us of God's transcendence. John is separated from this throne because there's a great sea there. It also reminds God, uh, John of God's power because throughout the book of Revelation, the sea is not good. Okay, the sea is where the, the, the monster will come out of the sea. At the end of this vision, you'll find at the end of the book of Revelation, there is no longer any sea. The sea represents everything that is opposed to God and his will. And yet, 
When John sees this vision in John chapter or in Revelation 4, it's as clear as glass. Nothing rages. No evil has any power in front of God's glorious throne. He is sovereign. Don't you know this must have comforted the persecuted churches? All of their enemies before the throne are still as glass. They are just, they are obedient before the throne. Finally, perhaps most importantly, around this vision of the throne, we find that God is not alone. He is exalted alone, but he is not alone. There is a brilliant cast of characters. They're all facing the Lord and they're all giving praise. Along the outer ring, you're gonna find 24 seats, 24 thrones, and each of them are facing in to the one main throne. They're occupied by the elders. Now, who are the elders? I'll be honest with you. I can't tell you conclusively. You have to have a little bit of humility as you interpret the book of Revelation. Um, Some have suggested that they're redeemed saints. Some think that they're angels. After about a week of studying this and digging into it and talking about it, I tend to think that they're angels representing Old and New Testament saints. If you rush up here afterwards and you have a different opinion, you want to arm wrestle, I'll let you win though. I don't care. That's fine. We'll be all right with that. If you have a different opinion there. The point is, these elders are powerful. They have access to the throne and they are enthralled with the vision of God. They can't get their eyes off of him. They're not checking their smartphone. They're not checking the scores. They're, they're enthralled on the throne of God, continually exalting him in worship. As you come one ring in, one, cl- one step closer to the throne, you're gonna find a new set of creatures. They have even better access to the throne. And they are even more difficult to figure out who they are. <clears throat> who are they? Again, we could spend a lot of time answering that question. The truth is John mixes up several Old Testament passages to describe these creatures. You might notice if you were here last week in Isaiah chapter six, there's some references to Isaiah six. They have six wings, right? They're, they're singing the same kind of lyrics to their song. There's also allusions to Ezekiel one and Daniel seven here. What is John trying to say? Who, who are these beings? Again, we're not sure. Maybe they're a higher class of angels. Maybe they're representative for all of God's creation. I tend to think that. Psalm 103 commands every one of God's works to give him praise, all creatures of our God and King. Lift up your voice and let us sing. These figures represent all of God's created order and every one of them are just bowing down, giving God worship. That's the main point. Whoever these beings are, they're powerful. They've got lots of eyes. They're very wise. They're enthralled with God. Chapter four ends with this powerful and unending worship service. The elders and the creatures, they continually fall down and they they cast their crowns before the throne of God. God is worthy alone to receive all glory, all honor, all power. That's a stunning vision. That's what the church needs. At this point, John could have walked back through that door He could have written his book of Revelation and we've got all that we need here. He could have sent it to the churches and they would have certainly been nourished and fed by this beautiful picture of God on his throne. They would have had even, I think, an even better picture than what David had and what Isaiah had, a more complete picture. His glory shining brightly, God's powerful, glorious, sovereign. Don't fear, church, have faith. And I suppose at this time, we could also conclude our series on the throne of God. We've been looking at it three weeks in a row from three different angles now, and I think we have a really incredible picture of the throne of God. 
And yet, I want to suggest that if we stop here, we would have an incomplete picture of God. In many ways, the three weeks that we have been studying the throne of God are are just begging for the revelation that we find in chapter five. There's going to be a new revelation that will absolutely blow our minds, a stunning vision, uh, and, and it develops. So let's jump into chapter five and read the first five verses. The narrative will pick up very quickly here. In the middle of this worship service, it says that I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and open its seven seals. In the midst of this heavenly worship scene, John notices the right hand of God. This is as close to we'll get as a description of God. The right hand. And in it, there's a scroll. It's a critically important document. Not surprisingly, lots of debate. What is this book? Most likely, it's God's plan of judgment and redemption. This book will be broken and unraveled throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. It's a critical document. It holds God's plan to destroy the wicked and to save the righteous. That's what's in that scroll. It's a critically important document. And as soon as John noticed that book, he heard a strong angel shouting out in a loud voice, who's worthy to open this book? But the answer was a tragic silence, the unthinkable. As he looked in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, he looks everywhere, scans all of creation. Who can open the book? Silence. Nobody was worthy. And so John did what all of us would have done to think that God has a really wonderful plan of redemption, but nobody's powerful enough to pull it off. He began to weep. Nobody can save you. Try, if you will, for a moment to imagine the pure despair that John feels at this moment. Nobody can save you. God has a great plan, wonderful plan, but he can't quite pull it off. It turns out that the enemy would, in fact, triumph over you. It turns out that your suffering is indeed useless. You really don't have any hope. There really is no light at the end of the tunnel. Nobody can open that scroll. Now, if that's the case, let's weep with John. Can you hear the weeping in our world? That hopeless sense of despair? Nobody's coming to save Nobody's powerful. Behind the facade of the happiness that exists in our culture, in our world, in our friends, in our neighbors, in our coworkers, behind that facade, there is a deep and tragic sadness. And if you listen closely enough, you can hear it. Just listen to their music. Watch their movies. Nobody's coming. There's only despair. Let's just fill it with pleasure. Let's just get through. But church, this isn't the end of the story. It doesn't end here. One of the elders grabbed John as he's weeping and breaking down because there's no hope. One of the elders grabbed John and he said, listen, don't cry. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We're not hopeless. I want you to hear that this morning. We are not hopeless. We have hope. The lion of Judah has the authority. He is worthy to open the scrolls. These are provocative images from the Old Testament. Genesis 49, the lion of the tribe of Judah will come and he will reign. He will have victory. In Isaiah 11, the root of David would, write, would shoot up and he would rule. The angel says to John, he's here. He has come. He has powerfully opened the seals. And so as John lifts his head, wiping the tears from his eyes, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is what he's expecting to see. Pick up in verse six. Between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though, as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Our third point, which I don't want to get lost in this, is God's glory is fully expressed as a slain lamb. John looks up, clearing his eyes, expecting a lion, and he saw a lamb, a little lamb, a Passover lamb. He was expecting a symbol of strength. After all, the person that would take that scroll out of God's hand had to be powerful, wouldn't he? Instead, he saw a symbol of weakness, a little, little lamb. This lamb was especially weak because it had been slain this was a lamb not before the sacrifice. This is a lamb after the sacrifice. And yet, it was standing. It wasn't dead. It had risen again. Church, behold your Savior. This is the gospel. The Lamb of God has overcome, triumphed over evil, the powers of hell, over Satan, your greatest enemies by dying. Let's take a step back real quick. Is this too foolish for you? Maybe you're new to this message. Is this too weak for you? Maybe you just haven't thought of it in this way. This is actually the problem that Paul addressed in the letter to 1 Corinthians. See, the Jews rejected Jesus because he's too weak. Certainly he's not gonna come like that. They wanted a political, a strong Messiah, not, not the cross. Jesus didn't fit their ideas. The, the Greeks rejected him because he was too foolish. Certainly he's not gonna go to the cross. You, you saved through suffering, through dying, no way. But did you notice that the lamb in, had seven horns and seven eyes? In apocalyptic literature, the horns represent strength. The eyes represent wisdom. Message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The seven horns, the seven eyes. This lamb isn't weak. This lamb isn't dumb. This lamb is clothed with all power and all wisdom. You have to understand that the cross was not an accident. It was not a mistake. It wasn't God running out of options and saying, just, okay, go to the cross. This was God's brilliant plan before the foundation of the world. He would destroy sin and death by dying in our place. 
It's critical that you think you keep this in mind and you worship Christ as such when we come to the Good Friday service a few weeks from now. It's critical that you remember this as when we return to Mark's gospel next week and we find ourselves in the passion narrative. Jesus isn't weak. He's not being overcome by the religious leaders. Satan isn't winning. Jesus isn't dumb. He is overcoming them by becoming weak, by going to the cross, by suffering, by dying. This was God's plan all along. He would disarm the powers of evil by going to the cross. Jesus Christ is the all-knowing, almighty, living, living yet slain lamb of God. Notice what that lamb did. Little slain lamb living, he walked right up to the throne and he took the scroll out of God's hands. Only Jesus has the power to do that. Only Jesus has the power to unroll God's beautiful plan of redemption and salvation and judgment. Your fate is in the hands of Jesus. I'm not going up there. You're not going up there. The strong angel with a mighty voice, he would have been a good candidate. I would have sent him. He's not going up there. The four living creatures, they're not going up there. But Jesus did because Jesus won. Jesus won. He's not going to win. He won. He has the power. He overcame. Stop weeping, John. Get up. The lamb is overcome. He's worthy to open the scroll. From this moment in the book of Revelation, you will rarely see a vision of God's throne without the lamb of God. We worship God and the lamb. I don't know about you, but this, is, this changes the way that I live. It changes the way that I think about life right now. If this was God's plan all along, this isn't a foolish plan, a weak plan. This is a strong and powerful plan. It was God's plan from the foundations of the world. And if Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan through the cross, and if the cross is the climax of God's glory, which we believe it is, should I expect to suffer any less than he did? Why do so many of my prayers try to get out of suffering? Why am I so bent and determined to live a happy, comfortable life right now? We need to cultivate this vision of the slain lamb of God on his throne so that we can have the courage and the confidence to stand up and to suffer well. We need to cultivate this, this vision so that we don't give in to the pressures of the world. Listen, it would be so much easier for us if we just open the door to false teaching like the church in Pergamum. Every two weeks, every day, there's a new book coming out that we've got to fight. <laughs> we've got to say, that's not true. This is true. Get back to the truth. It would be so much easier if we just opened the door and just said, forget it. You know, do what you want. That's the, that's the easy way. That's not the way of the lamb. It would be so much easier if we just gave in to the sexual revolution like Thyatira. The pressures of secularism, they're immense. They're flexing their muscles and they're not going anywhere. Buckle up. This is it for the rest of our lives, I feel like. We're, we're, We're in for a ride. They're not lightening up. And so you know what? This is gonna be painful for us. Let's just loosen the grip, right? Let's just invite it in the door and just say, it's okay. Live however you want to. God's, he doesn't care. That's the easy route. Open the doors like Thyatira. Just take your eyes off the throne, trust in your wealth, trust in your wisdom, like Laodicea. I don't know about you, but I'd rather stay faithful. I'd rather live the life 
of the lamb, the way of the lamb. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and who is right now sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He overcame through suffering. That's how we overcome, through pain. This vision also changes the way that I think about heaven. When I think of heaven, I tend to think of this resurrection power. I want to see Aslan sitting up there on the throne, the lion of the tribe of Judah, white, bright. And I think it's going to be like that. I really do. I think it's going to be wonderful. But that's where my mind goes when I think about heaven. Triumphant victory, not a trace of pain. But the book of Revelation is very clear. Victory came through a suffering servant. It came through a sacrificed lamb. That's the vision that's being exalted right now in heaven, a slain lamb. To be assured, the the resurrection is assumed. We're going there. Jesus is alive. That point is just assumed. He was standing there. Like It's not made explicit. What is made explicit is his death, is his suffering. That's what's made explicit. That's what's on full display. Throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, they will highlight the, the Messiah's death and suffering, and so it will be for all eternity. The heavenly host is currently singing to a lamb that was slain. We're gonna, we're gonna read it in a second. The, the lyrics of their song include blood, include death. By your blood you ransomed a people for God. The cross will be exalted for all eternity. We'll, be, we'll join the chorus when we get there. I want you to think about it this way, if you can. This is an overwhelming thought. In a few years, our race will be finished. Praise the Lord. It's gonna be over. Christ will return in a few years because that scroll gets unro- unrolled now and it will be read and it will, it will come. Jesus, Jesus will come and he will set everything right. And when he returns to make all things new, we will receive a perfect glorified body, the one we were meant to have. No scars, no pain. All of us that believe in Christ. As the old hymn says, we'll exchange the old rugged cross for a crown. We will. When the redeemed church gathers in heaven, there will be one body that will have wounds. We'll sing to a lamb that was slain. Jesus will be in the center on his throne and his resurrected, glorified body, but he will bear the marks, rich wounds yet visible. This was God's plan all along. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. That's that's the gospel, and it will stay like that for all eternity. We'll worship a, a Christ that was slain for us. As you process this, what else can you do but repent and worship? That's the last point. God's glory leads to unending worship. And I I simply want to close by reading the lyrics of these creatures, new song to the Lamb. A new song, new revelation, new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood 
you ransom people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Would you stand with me and we'll pray as we prepare our hearts to worship and to join that heavenly chorus. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Christ, we bow down before you. You are God. And you will be worshiped as such. And we join that heavenly chorus now, Father. The elders picked up their harps. We pick up our instruments now. We lift our voices loud. It's a joyful time, Father. It's time to break out the instruments and to sing in joy. We know that life is difficult. We suffer. We are in the midst of it right now. And and when we cry out to you and let you know, you say back, "I, I know. You hear us, God. Also around the throne are the bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints. We're there this morning. We're not there physically. We want to be there so badly, Lord. We want to be in in, in, in the presence right now, God. And yet, right now, all we have is our prayer. We're lifting them up. And the elders are putting our prayers right before your throne. Would you hear our prayers this morning? May they lift to you like incense, Father. And so we sing, we join with the chorus, we fall down before the slain lamb as we will do for all eternity and we give you great worship right now, God. Amen.